cliffcentral.com. I would welcome to the show today, without any further ado, Dr. Alan Mendoza. We'll talk a little bit about the society, the Henry Jackson Society that he's involved with as a think tank. But we, we can hop straight into some of the news. We can go into some of the big global in- incidents and affairs and uh, relations that are taking place all around us, the things that people are most interested in. Let me not waste a single second. Dr. Alan Mendoza, it's a great pleasure to have you on. A real pleasure to be with you, Gareth. Thank you. So I know it's chaos in London today. Today, apparently, Boris Johnson says he's going to resign. Now, you guys at the Henry Jackson Society are an international think tank. You talk about all kinds of issues. But the Conservative Party in Britain being front and center news for you right now. I mean, there's probably people on the streets shouting and screaming either bugger the Tories or thank God Boris is gone or oh, no, this could mean an opening for Labour. I mean, what's the what's the actual undercurrent here and, and what do you think is going to happen? Well, that's look, it's a really interesting question. And part of this is that the situation has changed so fast that to actually analyse it and to understand it, you kind of need a degree uh, just in, um, you know, kind of political analysis to even understand the twists and turns. The last, the last three yeah. years of Conservative Party politics, you'd need three degrees. <laughs> well, look, I was going to say the last three days of Conservative Party politics, you're going to need three days. I and mean, it's been quite extraordinary. You've never seen a situation where over 50 ministers or other posts resigned. The prime minister was digging in. Nobody was going. Everybody knew he'd have to go. And that happened. But I think the interesting part is actually start where you, the third of your little scenarios, people saying, oh, no, this might create an opportunity for Labour. I think, ironically, the main reason he's gone is not because people are worried about his successor uh, creating an opportunity for Labour, but actually him creating an opportunity yeah. to Labour. And I think if you've seen in the last few months, the election results for the Conservatives have been pretty grim. Uh, they've lost yeah. parliamentary by-elections in rock-solid seats. I mean, these are seats that should never, well, you know, the, the seat in Devon that had uh, a 24,000 majority, which is huge in British terms, that mm. had never been non-Conservative held. That went to, to the Liberal Democrats. You saw local councils in London, in Westminster and Wandsworth, things that have been conservative for 30, 40, 50 years, turning Labour. I think there was a general sense that what Boris Johnson was doing was harming the conservative brand, trashing the brand, and that he was a drag rather than a winner. And that actually, if you want to win the next general election as conservative, you have to replace him. And frankly, I think that's been the the sort of mood within the parliamentary party for the last few weeks. Of course, you know, aided by this whole ethics scandal business that's been drip, drip, dripping for the last six months as well. And I think what you've seen is a twofold process. In the country, people lost faith with Boris Johnson over his behaviour, his personal behaviour. But in the parliamentary right. party, they lost faith with him because they felt he was now a loser, not a winner. Well, how did it all go so wrong for Boris? Because he came in on a high, you know, Theresa May and, and even David Cameron, to some extent, had really lost their way with Brexit. There seems to have been an overwhelming amount of energy and, and momentum behind that movement, which the two of them completely misread. Boris comes in. He's, he's got all the qualities of an eccentric Englishman. He's, he's probably uh, a, a kind of, and I don't want to overstate this or give Boris too much credit, but there was a Churchillian kind of oratory skill to the man. Certainly sometimes his mouth is also the thing that got him into the most trouble um, more times than, than, than anyone on the conservative side would have liked. But Boris didn't look like the worst possible person. And I thought maybe out of his depth in some respects, but he acquitted himself reasonably admirably for a long time. I think COVID hit like it did anywhere else in the world, all the politicians quite hard once we realized how much they'd buggered it up. 
But what do you think happened to Boris along the way? And, and where did he lose his footing? And what was the most egregious sin on his charter? Well, again, you've packed a lot in there and there's, there's a lot to talk about. Look, <laughs> Boris, will, Boris will be remembered for three things, I think. Th- three things, positively, I mean, there are plenty of negatives. But on the positive side, he'll remember, for, as you say, getting Brexit done, number one, uh, when nobody else, it appeared, could get over the line with a very difficult political issue that had paralysed British politics for three years, and he got it over the line. So that's a genuine achievement. Secondly, his response during the COVID pandemic, when he prioritised the vaccine production and Britain, you know, essentially, uh, you know, was second in the world after Israel as the in the rollout of vaccines, that was spectacularly successful, obviously, and helped, you know, kind of, and his attitude to COVID in general, the normalisation right. of COVID as something we're going to live with for years, was a major achievement. The final achievement, I right. think, has been, obviously, it's an ongoing one, is the Ukraine war, of course. His uh, incredible support for the free world, if you like, uh, in, uh, in, in Ukraine. That will go down in history. But you're quite right to point out there have been considerable negatives as well. The, the strange thing about it is that we knew all the negatives when Boris came in. Nobody elected Boris in 2019 did not realise that this was somebody who had significant personal problems personal issues around them, number one. Number two, that they acted in a fairly haphazard and chaotic and unruly way, because that was his nature in his career the whole way through. And then number three, it was probably fairly unclear what Boris actually stood for, um, you know, apart from Boris. Uh, And there was a sort of belief that (laughs) Boris's goal in life was to promote Boris as much as possible (laughs) to get to a point. And this is the difference, I think, between him and Churchill. It's often pointed out that Boris Johnson liked to model himself on Churchill. You use that same comparison. But Boris Johnson, you know, is a pound shop Churchill in the sense that Churchill knew what he wanted to do with power when he got it very much, particularly in the in the worst hour of all in 1940. Churchill knew absolutely what he needed to do and how he needed to do it to get there. And Boris never did. And I remember one famous historian saying to me, you know, because Boris wrote a book on Churchill. He said that wasn't Mm. the book about Churchill. He said that was a book about Boris, (laughs) you know, masquerading as Churchill. And so I feel that, you know, ultimately, we knew his foibles, we accepted them, you know, for a time, they were always eventually threatening to overwhelm him. And thus it proved ultimately, he never, he was never able to to take over those demons in the way that Churchill did. Churchill had plenty of demons too, of course, but he managed to control yeah. them or, you know, uh, to, to, to second them to other things. And I think ultimately Boris's lack of direction I mean, the famous, um, his former chief of staff, Dominic Cummings, called him an out-of-control shopping trolley. And that's kind of, you know, this imagination of, are we going this way, that way? His speeches were like that. His government was like that. And thus it has proved. Careening. You know, how much more odious must Labour and the Lib Dems be for them to miss out on this opportunity to really take the Conservatives to the cleaners? It tells you something about how far behind... Labour and the Lib Dems actually are in the UK at the moment, doesn't it? Well, this is, I mean, this is the unspoken part of the whole equation. You would think the Labour Party would be 20 points ahead in the opinion polls after this chaos, and they're not. They're ahead, but not by any significant margin that you would go, there's been a major crisis in the country and we're going to turn to the opposition. It wasn't like in the 1990s when Tony Blair was coasting to victory from, you know, 1994 onwards. It was obvious it was going to be a smashing, you know, victory for the Labour Party, a defeat for the Conservatives. Mm. This is not the case. And you're right to point out that reflects a failure of those opposition parties to convince the British people that they know what they're doing. And in part, of course, Labour is still uh, struggling with the legacy, the poisonous legacy of Jeremy Corbyn, you know, a a Labour Party leader who dragged the party to the hard left. 
who you know allowed anti-Semitism to flourish within uh, the party, uh, who were seen to be out of touch uh, with the British people on a whole host of foreign policy issues and domestic policy issues, uh, and who could never, you know, kind of get the sense of on, on economics that he could be trusted to lead the country. Labour are living with that legacy still. They have not done anywhere near enough to persuade so, the British people that they are the leaders here. So forgive me for interrupting you, but but Britain is nothing if not obsessed with history. And I've heard mm. people making comparisons between what's going on now with Boris, and we will move off of the UK in a minute, even though that's where you are, and I didn't want to let this opportunity slip. I'm happy People to move away from Boris, to I can assure you. <laughs> <laughs> People are comparing it to, to John Major, they're comparing it to Margaret Thatcher, uh, both sort of palace coups within the, uh, the, 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 the Conservative Party. But of course, it's very different to those two, uh, not just because of the, of the times that we're in, and the fact that even the words Labour and Conservative don't mean what they meant Back in the, in the days of Margaret Thatcher, I mean, the, the average British working class man or woman is probably likelier to be conservative than they are to be Labour, which is, again, a uh, demonstrable failure on the part of the Labour Party. But what do you think the major differences are between this and those parallels people are seeking to draw? Well, that yes, I mean, again, you're right to highlight the the ideological nature of politics is not quite there in the way it was certainly in the 1980s and maybe even the 1990s for that matter, or the early 90s yeah. at, at very least. I think... I think what politics has come down to at the moment is a question of competence rather than ideology, uh, because this conservative government has not acted in a particularly conservative way. It's raised taxes rather than lowered them. It's splurged money left, right and centre, you know, into people's pockets. It's an extraordinary tax. You've, probably, you've got to go back to the 1950s to find a conservative government that's behaved in this sort of way. So right. this is not about ideology. This is about, you know, ultimately competence and a belief as to who is best placed to deliver a victory at the next election. And in a sense, I suppose one of Boris Johnson's interesting triumphs was he occupied that middle space because he didn't believe in anything himself. And most famously, you'll remember back in 2016, when deciding whether to back Brexit or against Brexit, he wrote two letters, one in favour, one against. So he ultimately decided to send the one against, <laughs> but he could have easily sent the one in favour if he felt that was better for him ultimately. So his, but by being so pragmatic, I think he ate a lot of the ground that Labour normally sat on. And the Labour Party struggled to create its own distinctive, uh, you know, kind of image in the centre around competence. It went to the left under Corbyn, created the centre ground for, for Boris. And now I suppose the question for Labour is, can it create somehow a more competent veneer than the Conservatives are doing? And that's why all of this is still open for discussion. It's not like the Margaret Thatcher case, when the Tories were actually proven correct that if they replaced Margaret Thatcher, they might still win the next general election. It's a very interesting, you know, kind of, so it was a coup, but they realised they were going to lose under Margaret Thatcher and end up winning under John Major. I think you, there is a parallel there in that the Conservatives could still win the next election. Probably are odds on two still win the next election if they can just elect somebody who can articulate competence. That's what the British people are after right now. Right. So we've, we've started our discussion on a tangent. I knew this was going to happen when I found out what you did. And I think it's only fair that we let everybody know what you do. Can you tell us what the Henry Jackson Society is and, and who Henry Jackson was? So let me start with reverse order because he came first. So Henry Jackson, Henry Scoop Jackson, was a very prominent um, U.S. Democratic Party uh, senator from the 1950s to the 1980s uh, when he actually died in office. And what he became known for was his robust view on international affairs. But what's interesting about Jackson was that he wasn't some knee-jerk militarist guy wanting conflict. What he felt was that in the 1970s in particular, when his sort of, um, if you like, his, his sort of own vision became honed, 
he could see the Soviet Union and communism was a threat strategically to the West. That was obvious. We saw the, the Soviets were a threat uh, to the free world. He could see that. And he obviously felt we needed a strong military to defend against it. But crucially, he saw another element. He saw a system that the Soviet Union was based on, the communist system, that was a challenge to the values of the free world. It was, you know, it was repressive. It kept you in prison. It's the only regime that built walls to keep you in rather than to keep you out. There was clearly an issue of human rights and what people were allowed to do in that system. And he felt the Soviets wanted to expand that system as well as their control over us. It was going to be a victory of communism over capitalism, economically and, and on a values basis. And he wanted to push back on that moral side as well. And he felt if you could push back on the moral side, you would have a very powerful weapon to Together with your military to fight them and to deny them the legitimacy that these regimes always seek to think they're in the same equivalence as we are. He was like, no, the Soviets are not in the same equivalence. They are essentially the evil empire before Reagan coined that phrase. And he fastened upon um, human rights uh, activists in the Soviet Union as people he would promote to do that. And there were two sort of sets he did. The first was a set of uh, people called the Refuseniks. These were Soviet Jews who wanted to leave the Soviet Union to go to Israel or anywhere, frankly, and were not being allowed to do so. And he championed their causes. And people like Natan Sharansky, um, who, of course, later became a minister in the Israeli government, will tell you today right. that if Scoop Jackson hadn't taken their cause, they would never have been out of the Gulag because he made them famous, essentially, and kept them in the public eye. But he also challenged dissidents such as Sakharov and people like that, who were challenging the system from a political sense as well. And in his view, the human rights side was vital because it weakened the Soviets and held them to account. Now, fast forward that then to why we... Well, uh, the other crucial thing was he was a bipartisan guy. Although he was a doctrinaire Democrat domestically, internationally, he said there is no politics in the politics of national security. And he was the first to reach across the aisle and say, look, we're united by things in defense of America and the free world, and we should put aside our party affiliations to do this. So when we were conceptualizing the Henry Jackson Society many years ago, we were like, well, how how do we, you know, kind of create an image of firstly, go, this is not a political uh, situation. I may personally be a conservative, but I can see benefit in the foreign policy of people like Tony Blair and others. And we want to be cross party. So we fastened upon Jackson as someone who really exemplified, A, the moral approach to foreign policy that we wanted to see happen and to domestic activities as well, but also, crucially, work, working cross party hours to do it. And so today, the Henry Jackson Society, if you like, what we do is we promote, defend and protect the principles of free and democratic societies, both at home and abroad. So abroad, we are about defending the free world, which is why you will see us right. on the front lines against Russia and China and Iran who are threatening the free world. And domestically, we're looking, obviously, at what are the things that are undermining free societies? What is you know, harming free speech? What are the challenges today in speaking your mind about certain aspects without being cancelled and aspects like that? And of course, also harder stuff like extremism and terrorism and what's happening domestically. And I would argue that we are the UK's boldest organisation on that front, being unafraid to take a stance, whether at home or abroad, and others would rather probably hide their heads in the sand. I think those are all marvelous things, and I'm glad that there are institutions, non-government organizations that are taking up this kind of cause because they're not on vogue. They're not necessarily the most fashionable things at the moment, even though all the people who are decrying them for not being fashionable are, are living under the auspices of those very freedoms, which people yeah, like course. Henry Jackson would have championed and triumphed. So I know we have a mutual friend in Douglas Murray who's just written an incredible book uh, about the defense of the idea of the West and the war on the West is what it's called. Um, before we get into the specifics 
And I do want to hear what you have to say about Russia and the Ukraine and also about Chinese hegemony and what you think about the decline of the American idea, if there is such a thing, if, if it is in decline. Uh, but, but before we get into any of that, on a more general um, basis, do you, do you feel that there is this great tension developing between the left and the right in the world, or is it as it's always been? And now, thanks to social media and perhaps the, 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 the media machine as it works in mainstream uh, news, that, that it's just brought it more to light than perhaps we would have had it feel like it was in previous generations. Is there really this massive, you know, chasm between the left and the right internationally? Well, um, I, I think there probably is, unfortunately. Um, and I think that is a cyclical issue. I mean, you see it at different times. I mean, you, uh, you know, in the late 60s and early 70s, you saw big divides between the left and the right internationally about how they handled international, you know, sort of issues like the Soviet Union or the Vietnam War, uh, or indeed what was happening within, within societies. What, you know, the, if you like the prescriptions the left had under someone like George McGovern in 1972 versus what Richard Nixon had were fairly deep divisions as to, uh, as well. in the 1980s in Britain, there were very, very significant divisions between the left and the right. But in between, you've had periods, of course, when there's been more consensus. I would say the 2000s, for example, there was a long period, I suppose, even the 1990s, when you had this whole post-Cold War dividend, everyone was kind of getting along with the idea that broadly liberal democracy, we're all there, you know, we're all in favour of rights, we're going in this sort of basis, and one just sort of bumped along quite happily. I think what's mm. happened, of course, is that I think it is the left that's provoked this this sort of crisis. And what, what you've seen is a hardcore of activists within left-wing movements who have risen to prominence in certain places. Now, sometimes they've taken over political parties, good example being the Jeremy Corbyn element in the UK, but you could also see what, what, the, what they're trying to do in the US, the Democrats, and uh, attempted to sort of, you know, the, the progressives are trying to take over the party there. Sometimes though, it's in civil mm -hmm. society organisations. I think academia is a classic example of this. The left have completely right. taken over academia and are enforcing a set of beliefs and values their beliefs and values on everyone else in direct contravention of what academia should be about which is the free flow discussion and debate of ideas when you should be challenged with those ideas and instead that's not happening people's views are being clamped down upon and never more draconian fashion and it's not simply there it's in other cultural institutions as well arts uh, institutions um the museum sector, all these places, you've seen a 30-year campaign by the political left, if you like, take over these places and to drive yep. control. And so even though the political right has probably been more successful politically in the last 30 years, slowly, slowly, the basis of what is acceptable, deemed acceptable in society, has changed towards the left. And I think the radicals of that movement are far more radicals than even the radicals of the 1960s. And I think although yep. there are still many sensible people on the left of politics, uh, it is on that side of politics that you are seeing the great divide to make things that we used to regard as axiomatic now be seen as evil and wrong. And that's what we have to guard against. If we're serious about bringing people back together again, we have to reassert the traditional values of liberal democracy, not, if you like, the new left values of liberal democracy. That's the perversion of it, actually. And of course, that's provoked the right, which which can become very, very dangerous indeed. And we've seen in history, we don't need to look very far back to see just how awful the right can be when it's at its very worst. But unfortunately, right. when the left has gone to its extreme, it, it does wake the dragon of the right. And we see, you know, Hungary, we've got some murmurs going on there. In Poland, we've got some noises. In Russia, we can see it very clearly. In Brazil, you could argue it's happening too. Certainly in America, 
Uh, I think there are still people who are who are traumatized by the fact that someone like Donald Trump might have become president, where there were people who were predicting precisely that a good 15 years ago already. Well, exactly. And I think it's very interesting to look at the reaction and counter reaction. The far right is a problem. There's no doubt about it. But the far right has sure. never been a major issue in European societies, for example, since the Second World War until fairly recently. And part of that is driven, as you say, by a reaction to what is being seen on the ground, whether it is a change in the cultural fabric of societies, whether it is a sense that uh, things have changed beyond what they you know, were established for many, many years in that way. And I think there is an obvious reaction to that, that people are going, well, the mainstream parties are not having an answer to that. So we're going to these extreme uh, well, you know, responses. I mean, I mean, France, just just look at France, the fact mm. that someone like Jean-Marie Le Pen, who, who now has moved to her credit more and more to the center, but essentially is the French liberal left's worst nightmare of a candidate. Uh, she made a very good showing in the last election and is on the precipice of, of garnering for herself the kind of kingmaker status that was unthought of especially in a country like France, which has always tended to the left. I, yeah, I, I would agree with that. What's interesting is that, um, so Marie Le Pen is, is someone who I would still regard on the extreme wing of politics, although, as you say, she has, you know, kind of changed her focus, shall we say. I'm not sure she's changed, I believe, but her focus has changed, it's true. Yeah, yeah, what's yeah. interesting well, about the French election, the PR, though, yeah. <laughs> she has. What, but what's interesting about the French election is, is not simply that she has risen to this incredible prominence, but that she has done so symbiotically with the hard left of Mélenchon. And what's terrifying right. about the French election is in the first round of the French presidential election, over 50% of French voters who voted, voted for extreme candidates of either far left or far right, if you take in Zamora as well. And again, in the French parliamentary elections just now in the second round, you've got, you know, well over 150 extremist MPs on either side who are in the French National right. Assembly. In my view, the largest number of extreme MPs in any European country since the Weimar Republic. And, you know, and that's, that, that didn't end so well from memory. So, well, I mean, we've got, could, you we've got, could, a, we've you got a problem quite, on both sides here. And you could quite easily draw parallels there again with the, with the US. Bernie Sanders and his supporters probably had more in common with Donald Trump and his supporters than with the moderates on either the, the moderate left or right. Correct. And I think that reflected itself certainly in 2016, when sufficient numbers of Sanders supporters probably switched straight to Donald Trump and just said, no, thank you, Hillary Clinton. We're voting for Trump. And that's, you know, helps Trump, you know, come in on that basis. So it, this is, you know, I suppose this relates to, if you like, the circular theory of politics, that people on the, mm -hmm. if you look, it's not a left right spectrum, it's a circle. And so the people at this end and that end of the circle have more in common with the, than the people over there. So that, you know, sort of does go very much to that sort of belief. So, Alan, I, I, I really am trying to be very conscious and disciplined about our time because there's so much I want to touch on with you. Let's just talk about the biggest geopolitical crisis of the moment, which is the situation in Russia and the Ukraine. Uh, what is your take on this? Is there an end to it? Because it seems like this is going to be protracted. I don't think that the, the Ukraine or any of its allies necessarily see a way out. I don't think Russia cares whether there's a way out or not. They've profited enormously from this and will continue to, even if they haven't had the military successes that they were hoping for. And the international community is now between a rock and a hard place because we're all paying more for fuel. We're likely going to find that it, it is an, an extremely onerous situation to get ourselves out of. When I say ourselves, whether you're on the left or the right or on the pro-Russia or the pro-Ukraine side of this, it's something which, which could have been avoided and which I have to with all due respect to Joe Biden and his incompetent presidency, say that this could have been avoided, probably. There were his own CIA chief who had been 
the head of their mission in, in Russia had warned him that this could have been obviated in some way before it broke out into all-out war. Well, certainly on that score, um, I think there were numerous things we could have done to stop the the conflict. The, the big mistake was many people, most people, did not believe Putin would actually cross the line uh, into Ukraine. And as a result... But he's been telling the, us, the, he's been saying it in plain English, well, in plain Russian, for t- 12 years probably, that this and is his intended his past goal. Actions, yeah. And his past actions oh, were so indeed reflected on that. But that's always a problem. People tend not to, I'm a great believer in taking authoritarian leaders at their word. If they say they're going to kill you or if they say they're going to cross the, you know, I, I tend to believe them and go, you know what? We need to guard against that. What are we going to do to stop that from happening rather than, nah, I didn't believe him. He's just having a laugh over there. He's doing this for domestic consumption. Well, actions, you know, do show that in Putin's case, he was likely to cross a border and do it. There are men buried in that ground that you're on in the UK who've been polonium poisoned for thinking uh, much less favorably of, of, of Vladimir Putin. So the rest of us should perhaps listen. Well, precisely. And to also listen to what Putin might want to do going forwards in terms of how this war ends, which was your your other point. So, yes, could he have been deterred? Absolutely. I think the point of deterrence so failed over the Afghanistan withdrawal. Once Joe Biden was seen to be fleeing from Afghanistan, I think in Putin's mind it went, you know what, this guy is not going to stop me. This guy is not going to stop me. I do, by the way, think that Putin probably didn't understand what would happen internationally as a response, even though he's weathering the storm. I don't think he expected this storm. I think he felt what happened in Afghanistan was a harbinger of weakness full full stop. And he probably didn't understand the, the throwback. But you're right. Essentially, the, the failure of deterrence meant that Putin could cross that border without understanding the implications of doing so. And that's where we are in this kind of context. Now, then we go, well, how does this end? How does this conflict actually end? And there's a huge problem here. Russia has you know, kind of destroyed all the norms of the international community and what it's done. It has launched a war of aggression, unprovoked. It is a war of conquest, quite clearly. It wants to seize territory, wants to occupy that territory and seize it. It has committed war crimes. It is attacking civilians, you know, all the rest of it that we've seen, the tragic circumstances that are happening. There is no question that we cannot reward Russia for this kind of behaviour. If we do... Every single aggressor will know that it's open season once more on the laws of civilization, and they can do the same thing. What do you think China's going to do in Taiwan? What do you think, you know, uh, Iran's going to do in the middle? This is simply going to be the way, you know, might is right once more. So the first issue and problem is we cannot allow Russia to normalize and win through this process. However, the second problem is how do you stop Russia from doing that? We're not an active combatant in this, even though we are uh, an active backroom combatant in this. We can keep on supplying the Ukrainians with weapons. But, you know, the Ukrainians are firstly losing men on a daily basis. And also their economy has been utterly destroyed by this. The Russian economy will be hit, there's no doubt, by the sanctions, etc. Ukraine will lose 50% of its GDP this year. How does that country function going forward? Are we really willing to prepare to you know, write blank checks going forward forevermore? to kind of keep this going. Now, I I think we will for some time because we recognise the principles are huge here at stake. But where does this war actually end? And I suppose ultimately he's somewhat in Putin's control. He, my belief is that he, he's also tired. Although he's profited from this, the Russians have taken huge casualties. They've taken huge military, you know, kind of losses as well in equipment on, on the front lines. He needs to, in his view, he will try and get to the end of Donetsk province as well as he's just done in Luhansk. And he will then say, I've got the Donbass. 
I've done what I always intended to do. And of course, that wasn't what he intended to do because we know he invaded Kiev and other things and tried to topple the whole government structure. But he will say, I've got this. I've, d- I've done what I've said and I'm going to declare a ceasefire now and let's see what happens. And his belief will be that the war will then freeze at that point in time. And, you know, that may well, it won't be a resolution to the problem. It will probably be the, the natural staging phase. But that will not lead to sanctions being lifted in Russia. It will not lead to this energy crisis ending. It will not lead to the grain crisis ending and all the rest of it. And so we will be stuck in a very painful and protracted frozen conflict that will keep on going back and forth. And which, of course, he can start again at any moment, yeah. just as he did, essentially, from his Eastern campaign already. So there are no, unfortunately... There are no good, quick, easy fixes. Ultimately, though, the thing that would resolve this would be Putin's fall from power. But that is not looking likely at the moment. Um, I think that's what the West is hoping for, but it's not looking likely. And he's more popular than ever back home in Russia. And yes. uh, and there's yeah. also his, his, backdoor, his backdoor sales opportunities to China with, with Russian fuel. He's not worried about sanctions to the West if he can sell to the East. Um, it's, it's all very messy. What you're saying is that the chess game is that he has the move to get out of the war and he has the, the next move afterwards to get back in should he choose to. That is correct. And the only thing that might change that equation is how far the West are prepared to go in terms of giving the Ukrainians the really top-notch stuff that can turn a battlefield conflict. Remember, Putin needs to win that territory to declare the ceasefire. If he doesn't win the territory because the Ukrainians have been given sufficient high-quality artillery, howitzers, anti-tank stuff to stop the Russians in their tracks... Then you're in a really interesting stalemate where he can't go forward. He can't declare an end to the conflict. It's going to be a protracted. But what you're, what we're saying then is this war is going to struggle on for months and months and years, probably, uh, with still the repercussions of what's happening there. And are you worried about that big spooky specter of, of the idea of nuclear arms entering something like this? Or do you think that that's off the table? Do you think even Putin's not mad enough to do that? No, I think he is mad enough to do it. I, I, so the, the, but I don't think he'll do it just willy nilly. I think he would only do it if he felt that his regime was in serious danger of collapse. What do I mean? Let's imagine the Ukrainians do better than I just said. Rather than holding the Russians at stalemate, the weapon flow is such that they're actually able to punch through the Russian lines and push the Russians back and, you know, almost threatening the Russian border. At that point, if you're Putin, what do you do? You've manifestly lost the war at that point. You, you know, you haven't taken the territory. You said you were going to do this and you failed. The Russian people now begin to look, what, what, what are we fighting this for? Why are all these kids coming home in body bags and you've done nothing here? I think at that point, there was a very strong temptation on his part to launch a tactical nuclear weapon against a, Russia, a Ukrainian city to go, you need to sue for peace now. I'm not going to lose this war and I will, you know, I, I'm going to go to nuke Kharkiv or something in that sort of way, just or just a battlefield nuke even to show you I'm serious about stopping this now. So I think he could do that. Now, of course, that would put him even further beyond the realm of civilized behavior. But I think he's already gone there. I'm not really sure there's that much of a deterrence now to stop him from doing that as well. I don't, of course, think he's going to launch anything against the West. That would be suicide. Now, he's not into suicide. I think he's rational in that sense. From your mouth to God's ears. Um, speaking of, of, of China just a moment ago, because they're always looming on the outside of every conversation, mm. particularly here in Africa, as you're no doubt aware. You know, the Chinese influence in Africa is enormous at the moment. There are countries that are wholly dependent on China when it comes to uh, propping up their GDP, doing all their infrastructure projects, obviously at great cost. And with the hostage taking of all of the major key points in, in their countries at the same time, 
But China is playing a very good, clever and, and long game here. And I don't think anyone, whether you like them or you don't, in particular the, the, the Chinese Communist Party and their politics, you have to give credit to Xi and the people around him for having managed a very careful and clever dance, uh, which has put them in, in the position of being able to choose uh, a number of different options. Other countries don't have those options. Yes. I mean, they played a very careful game, but you can do that in the Chinese case because you set out five year plans. Uh, you know, you're not going to be threatened with power, you know, kind of transformations. And they had a goal, basically. They had a goal 20 to 30 years ago, which was to completely transform uh, where China's position was in the world. And they had a good sense of how to do it. And you've highlighted some of the ways they've done it and how they have burrowed deep within African societies, African countries, within Western societies. Uh, and it has been very, very slow for all of us to wake up to the reality that this isn't some kind of benign, friendly, you know, kind of power that seeks to, you know, really do what the Chinese call the win-win scenario. You will win and we will win. Mm. In this context, a Chinese win may be a short-term win for you, but will be a long-term loss for you because they establish themselves in such a critical way in your economy that you can't get them out. And if you try and get them out, they then hold you to ransom on that basis. And the Russians, I suppose, are showing you a good way of what that's working like in energy, but the Chinese have done it in other areas as well. And as you say, they're in a gra they, their strategic position is brilliant. Now, it's not perfect. They, they are still yeah. sectoral. At the end of the day, they are dependent on us to be their customers. And they can't yeah. just run this themselves in that sort of way. So there are points of leverage. There are ways we can, of course, um, move away from Chinese control, particularly of strategic areas of our economies. But that does require a concerted effort for us to do it. I thought it was, we just had a situation this week where uh, the, the head of MI5, uh, our domestic uh, intelligence, and the head of the FBI did a very, um, a very rare joint appearance when they highlighted the threat of China to our domestic societies in the West. You've got the same problem, I think, in Africa. Also, yeah. huge problems with Chinese infiltration of all kinds. And this is going to be, I think, the long-term battle of the next 20 to 30 years. How do we push back against the China model and what China's been trying to do, which is a much clever way than what the Russians have been doing? Another area of mutual interest is, is something you've already highlighted as one of the, the, the main focuses of the Henry Jackson Society, and that is the, the realm of free speech. Um, how do you think free speech is doing? Because it's, it's changed sides, I've noticed, and it hasn't only changed sides. It's become quite unfashionable in certain quarters, and, and you know things like hate speech have become a far more important issue to people who only have the right to say things because of the rights of free speech, which we've taken for granted and nobody's really fought for tooth and nail in most of the Western civilized, uh, you know, first world for the longest time. How do you feel we're doing in the world of free speech? Well, not well, I think, is the, the general consensus. And I believe you may have had a <laughs> bit of a brush with that yourself fairly recently um, <laughs> in those, terms yeah. of. Well, exactly. But, you know, this is a reality. You know, the, the issue is there is no right not to be offended in Western society. Now, I would hope you and I and all sensible people would not go around gratuitously offending our fellow citizens by saying, you That's know, kind of rude. No, rude things. And, and indeed, if you do cross the line into, you know, overt racism or, you know, kind of things that lead to violence in that regard, of course, you need to be prosecuted uh, for sure. that. 
What's happening now, though, as we well know, is that there is a policing of thought, but only on one side of the debate. You can pretty much get away with saying anything you want if you're on the, the political left. You can call your right-wing opponents the worst things possible. And, and if you're, you know, if you're also a person who is deemed to be a minority in some way, then your ability to say bad things is, is magnified and is, is, you know, encouraged. And of course, if you were to flip some of the things that, uh, you know, uh, left-wing sources or, you know, people, minorities have said about white people or about the right, it would be, you know, impossible to believe that a right-wing person or a white could say the same things, as you well know. So Mm. the point about free speech is that it has to be a level playing field in this area. And there has to be the ability of people to be able to talk about very emotive subjects, which may well cause offence. One example, of course, that's been doing the rounds in our society, and maybe in yours as well, is the whole issue of trans people and how this all works. Um, Where, of course, we had a court case this week where a person who had been fired on account for what they said about trans people it was now deemed an illegal firing, which was a great victory for free speech, actually, that somebody can say what they wanted about a controversial issue and not be fired for it on mm. that basis. But, you know, how has it come to this? We've had to launch court cases uh, to defend against people's rights to not be fired for saying something about a very controversial area like trans, where some people are trying to establish an orthodoxy that just isn't where most people are in our societies. And I think what's wrong about well, what's happening right now is, let me, just to finish this point, what's wrong right now is that minority positions, i.e. minority cultural positions, have become seized by people with a political agenda and pretend that they are majority positions. And that is, I think, what is causing real problems in our societies right now. Ordinary people going around going, that's not right. That's just not right. But I'm being told I'm wrong to say it. And that's a huge problem for our free societies. Well, it worries me even more that in, in countries like Britain, you, you've got the police essentially arresting people for things they've said. And in some cases, even things that they've just been associated with or have thought without actually saying them. And it's enough to garner a complaint. And then that complaint can actually lead to those people being quizzed by the police. That's very uh, fascist Nazi Germany circa 1933, isn't it? Oh, completely. This is Orwellian, uh, you know, sort of uh, thought policing in this sort of way. Now, thankfully, what you've just alluded to was happening um, and has now been has now been sort of, you know, pulled out. They're not doing that anymore. They've they've recognised that the that it went too far. But it's interesting you raise the police because the, the police have uh, in the UK and other places have come under a lot of criticism for the way they have um, also policed, say, demonstrations in a wildly different way, depending on who's been doing it. So why is it that, for example, Black Lives Matter protesters can wreck London and not be arrested, whereas anti-vaxxers, um, I don't agree with anti-vaxxers, but they get baton charged and bashed on the head when that happens. Why is it that Extinction Rebellion, people uh, who are obviously, you know, kind of very extreme in their climate activism, the police are kind of, you know, jumping on skateboards with and allowing them to paralyze city. But when a group of women wanted to protest against a woman being murdered by a police officer, the police basically carried them out kicking and screaming from the from the protest. This kind of failure to, as I said, adopt a level playing field by our authorities is also a yeah. huge problem in, in undermining confidence in our liberal democratic systems. So, really, with only a few minutes left, where to from here for the West? Where to from here for free speech? Where to from here for the idea of liberal democracy? Is it in decline? Are we seeing the 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 dream extinguished in the U.S., for example, where now more divided possibly than since the Civil War, 
Americans are polarized left and right. There are red states and blue, depending on your opinion on something as varied as abortion on one hand and gun rights on the other. You're immediately put in one of those categories and there can be no common ground. How do you feel about that? And, and where do you think it's all headed? And especially for a country like ours here in South Africa, where we're on the periphery of a lot of this, this culture war. Um, but it's still something which we're very much aware of and, and culturally that we're actually partaking in. Yes, I mean, I think, look, the South African case is, I mean, we started this whole conversation around our politics, but they're nothing compared to your politics. I mean, in terms of the (laughs) levels of corruption, the levels of what, you know, people, what your former president's been accused of. I mean, you know, it's quite what your current president's been accused of. I mean, the, 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 you know, the the degree, um, unfortunately, of corruption is corroding South African institutions and democracy. There's no doubt about it. And there's no doubt, of course, that all this background noise around culture wars, you know, may well potentially be used by people clinging to power, um, you know, mm-hmm. having been exposed for their activities uh, as a way of perhaps defending them and, and, and going for a different target. So I think you, you've got a particular concern there about what, um, you know, people who uh, are, are looking to, you know, deflect attention might go to. And that will not, you know, be positive for your society. But, you know, for our societies uh, elsewhere, um, I think the good news is there is some good news. The good news is that the whole Russia-Ukraine thing has reawakened the idea of the free world and that there is th- there are external threats to the free world. And we are going to try and, you know, limber up to fight those. I think NATO expansion shows people are willing to do that. I think the sanctions show people are willing to do that. If you'd have told me a year ago that we would be responding in this degree of unanimity across the Western world, I would have been surprised. So I think that shows there is life internationally, at least, in the idea of the liberal international order and in, you know, kind of the free world trying to once again meet the challenges of what's happening. And that's important, given what we were seeing and what we were saying earlier about China and where its challenge is. Okay, so that's the good news. The bad news is domestically, we appear to, you know, not be aware that the two things go hand in hand. You can't have the free world with an unfree society at home. It doesn't work. The whole basis of our free world system is a free society at home as well. And so therefore, the hope has to be that this growing resolution internationally is also going to be catalyzed domestically. And you are starting to see some of this. I highlighted, for example, the trans issue. What's remarkable in the UK Mm. is that one, two, three sporting associations have now decided that a trans woman is not actually a woman. It's actually a man who's undergone an operation. And as such, a trans woman cannot compete with women in a sporting, and you're going to have to compete in a separate category. That, to me, is an indication that within society, we're starting to realize that some of these sort of shibboleths of, if you like, wokeism and about, you know, what we're supposed to be doing can be shattered. And actually, they're popular when they're shattered. And then actually most people go, yeah, that's common sense. What the hell were we doing in this sort of reflection going down that route? And I'm a big believer ultimately in common sense. I don't believe that in these countries, even with political polarization, the majority of our citizens truly believe that we should be heading down the direction that the far left want us to head, or the far right for that matter. I think there is a silent majority that is slowly being mobilized on issues like this that is going to, in the next five, ten years, reassert itself. And that is going to be linked somewhat to our external posture uh, with the with the unfree world, and that hopefully will come back. So I don't believe it's over for liberal democracy. I think there are challenges we need to push back, but I think that the start has happened there already, and I'm hopeful that you know if we continue on that charge, we will end up in a much better place in ten years' time than we are today, even in terms of our own divisions domestically. 
Well, I, I hope that people like you will continue to be ambassadors of common sense, which you, you do so eloquently and so helpfully. Um, and thank you very much for your, your thoughts today. It's really a great pleasure to spend some time talking to someone who's so well-informed and who's so uh, clear about what seems so often to be confusing. And perhaps it's made confusing on purpose by a media who, who don't really want to give us information. They want to give us ready-made opinions and sometimes confuse us on purpose. So, Alan, it's a great refreshing thing to spend time with you. And I wish you well through the rest of your day as you figure out who your new, new prime minister might be. Um, and as you, <laughs> as you, you keep oh, yeah. waging war against the, uh, the, the, the shibboleths of the woke and of the far right. Exactly, on that basis. And if I can say, Gareth, thank you also for the work you're doing as a beacon of free thinking in South Africa, because again, that's so important that the, those lights are not extinguished. And in fact, you can perhaps help, help start, you know, a new uh, sort of blaze of freedom as well in that respect. You give, give me too much credit and you, you put too much responsibility in my hands, but thank you. Well, Alan, come on, the listeners are going to listen. Good. Thank you so no, much. No, absolutely. Well, I hope so. They'll tell me if they're not going to listen by stopping. But thank you very much. It's great to see you and thanks for your time. Cliffcentral.com.